the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Yes, it is. And welcome back. Wednesday, May 4th, 2022. Hope you're having a great Wednesday so far. I want to thank uh, Chris Llewellyn uh, for sitting in as my producer pro tem today. Bill has the day off. He'll be back with us tomorrow. Chris, thanks for doing this. Welcome back. Glad to have you. Anything um, to report on your... We, we both were at a great event last night. It was our Larry Elder event. And um, Larry, Larry told... Um, Larry told a story, uh, maybe I'll circle back to, uh, told a lot of stories, but one of them that kind of resonated with me, he was talking uh, with reporters when he announced his candidacy for governor. He was doing, you know, a press a press conference, and, um, and he laid out his visions on um, fixing California's homelessness problem, uh, economic drain problem, uh, exodus problem, which is part of the economic drain problem, drug problem education problem. He, he laid out a vision and he was saying the first question was, yeah, but do you know or not even? Yeah, but who do you think legitimately won the 2020 election? And he came back with, look, I'm here talking about going forward and the problems in California. And he went through the litany again and he went through stats and some of his ideas. Second question. Yes, we hear you. But where are you on the 2020 election? elections legitimacy and this went on for about three or four times uh before he gave uh his answer which was uh as he reported it pretty clear to me which was that there were a lot of questions to be asked but obviously uh not much to do at this point uh from his perspective and that uh joe biden is uh like it or not the president and we need to roll up our sleeves and uh, fix california and they weren't having any of it. They just wanted to talk to him about the 2020 election. And the similar experience I had, I'll circle back to the news of the day in a moment on this. Uh, a couple months ago, uh, a, main, a uh, what do we call it? Mainstream media, legacy media, corporate media, whatever you want. You know what I'm talking about. A group came in, uh, national, uh, to interview me and, and, and uh, uh, about different races in the state. And they were asking me about... Uh, the power of Trump's endorsement and the certain, you know, whether, you know, what it looked like for certain candidates getting the endorsement, not getting the endorsement, how it would matter. And I gave my answers. I'm happy to share my thoughts with you on that in a moment, which I will, uh, given what happened in Ohio and J.D. Vance's victory there. But uh, I don't think they liked my answers. Um, I don't think they liked my answers because I was saying that, you know, I think obviously uh, for the primary uh, candidates, it will probably help them in the neighborhood of uh, what, four or five percent. But a lot of the candidates running, a lot of the candidates running in the Republican uh, primaries, not only in Arizona, but from what I can tell throughout the country, including in Ohio, including, you know, J.D. Fans's leading opponent was it Josh Mandel. I think a lot of people think that they are as good as having or maybe even think they do have Trump's endorsement because people don't necessarily pay attention all the time, but they listen to the candidates talking about the MAGA agenda or the America First agenda 
or how they were there for Donald Trump. And someone like Josh Mandel, who uh, was running against J.D. Vance, J.D. Vance had the Trump endorsement. Josh Mandel didn't. But Josh Mandel did campaign uh, with a lot of uh, with a lot of Trump famous Trump supporters, people from the Trump orbit, which I think conveyed a certain a certain imagery that he may have had, you know, to voters that didn't know the specifics that he may have had a Trump a, a Trump uh, endorsement, but certainly was running on the Trump agenda. Josh Mandel was showing that he was there for Trump early on in 2016 when J.D. Vance wasn't. He was a latecomer and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, a lot of people may assume that they have the Trump endorsement. Um, And I, you know, I think so long as you run as a committed conservative and Republican, it may not matter all that. Much may not. I'd love to know your views on this. I I'm willing to be I'm willing to be wrong. I will say this: if you look at this year's primary season, Trump's uh, Trump's endorsements have uh, benefited um, the incumbent have benefited the victor, or the victors have 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 come from getting Donald Trump's endorsements. Now, what's interesting to me about the J.D. Vance race is J.D. Vance started off as a never Trumper, and then changed his views along the way. A lot of people did, and that's fine. We are a movement of converts, fine and dandy. I think I was an early supporter of Donald Trump. Uh, I say I think because I'm just trying to remember when I came to that support. It was, I think, I think it was early, it was mid-2015. I think it was mid-2015. I think uh, it was at an event uh, we did here in the Valley, which showed maybe the first or second primary debate, you know, with all the 15, 16, 17 candidates on there. And I said, at the end of the day, you have to think about who's going to win. I mean, all of our candidates, all of them at that point were within, you know, three to five percent of having the same opinions on issues, three to five percent, and some of them within one to two percent. I mean, what would the difference have been in some respects between, I don't know, a Ted Cruz and a Donald Trump? Well, history doesn't reveal its alternatives, but Donald Trump was a hugely, as far as I'm concerned, if you're a conservative, I don't care if you're a liberal, if you're a conservative, he's a hugely successful president. If you're a liberal or a lefty or a Democrat, he was a successful president for conservatives because look how much he still occupies their brain. What's the phrase? Uh, lives in their head, rent free. Has conveys still a, a Trump derangement sy- syndrome. He's been out of office nearly uh, three years, and yet the administration political uh, the uh, uh, the administration's political uh, people from Kamala Harris to Joe Biden still talk about him all the time. Still blame. Uh, whatever problems they try to blame on him, he still lives well in their heads. So, you know, you can't argue with uh, accomplishment. You can't argue with success. As Ronald Reagan said after two terms, reciting the details of his accomplishments, not bad, not bad at all. The J.D. Vance thing, though, has brought out a series of op-eds overnight, and I think we're going to see a bunch of these, and this I'd love to discuss with you all, uh, it's brought out a bunch of op-eds in thinking that this is the new Republican Party. You will see in these op-eds saying the Reagan days are over. The Reagan talk of economic freedom is over. The Reagan days of tax cuts are over. And I'm asking why we think that. What? Why, why is that over? Because 
J.D. Vance one and Donald Trump's legacy looms large. What was Donald Trump's legacy? What was his agenda, MAGA agenda, America first agenda, from the basis of what he did as president? What was it? It seemed to me not so different from the kinds of things, you know, mutatis mutandis with the necessary changes over time that Ronald Reagan stood for. Huge tax, huge tax cut, check. Uh, killing uh, terrorists, check. Uh, going, um, uh, aligning ourselves with allies and reassuring allies while going after, you know, traditional enemies, check. What was so different? What was so different? Now, what you will see is that China looms large here. China is a big part of the difference between uh, Ronald Reagan in those days and Donald Trump in his term and since. But it's also fair to say, it's also fair to say that in those days, the evil empire was the Soviet Union. It's fair to say that that's what Ronald Reagan took on. The Soviet Union, no more. Who knows? Again, history doesn't reveal its alternatives. Who knows where Reagan would stand on communist China today? My guess is he's a, he'd apply everything he said about the Soviet Union to communist China. One of the things about China is we know a lot more now about the way it operates, both internally and domestically, as well as expansionist and internationally. We know a lot more now than we knew then, a lot more. And China has also gotten a lot worse, a lot worse. So, you know, that is the leading communist country in, in the world right now. The Soviet Union was... Then I don't you call and tell me what 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 I'm missing here. Why? Why are we saying Reagan is out? Why do we have to say that? I think we can say Calvin Coolidge is in. Ronald Reagan is in. Donald Trump is in. Conservatism is in. That's one thing I want to talk to you about today. For those of you that are waiting for my monologue, I will give it to you at the top of the third hour. As you know, we rotate it around a little bit these days just to expose different parts of the um, different parts of the uh, of the listening audience to it live. So monologue, uh, it's going to be I'll let you know it's going to be on uh, Joe Biden and his charges of extremism against the Republican Party and the MAGA movement, especially with regard to the leaked Dobbs decision as written by Sam Alito. I'm Seth Liebson, 602-508-0960. We'll say something about the Dobbs decision today, too, when we come back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, 602-508-0960, if you'd like to join or add to the conversation. Um, the continued fallout from the release of the draft opinion of Samuel Alito's on the uh, Dobbs decision. We're going to talk about it uh, from a constitutional perspective with Brett Johnson uh, a little bit later in the hour. We check in with Brett on constitutional issues uh, once a week. If you have a question you want me to uh, ask him, uh, feel free to email me or uh, give us a call and we'll, uh, we'll, we'll jot it down for him. I'll give you my best shot at it as well. The thing I've been thinking about, I'd love your opinions on this as well. I have been worried. I have been worried a little bit, for those of you who have been listening uh, at least uh, the last several months, I have been worried a little bit that as much as we are looking to gain uh, the majority in the House of Representatives this November, uh, I have also have very high hopes for the Senate. I, I, I think, I thought, 
everything was looking pretty good so long as we don't blow it, so long as we don't take anything for granted, so long as we work as hard as we have to work and probably even a little harder than the Democrats. I thought we could do it. We, 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 we would sweep November. I still think that. I was worried, however, that a, um, an announcement on overturning Roe v. Wade, if Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned, could potentially uh, threaten that if we don't handle it right. What I'm thinking today, again, would love your answer on this or your thoughts on this. What I'm thinking today is the left may not have handled this right. The Democrats may not have handled this right. First off, um, by releasing it uh, as they did this week in May, they may have done it a little too early. They may have done it, obviously, because they needed to gin up the base. They needed to change the narrative. They needed to give the Democrats something to run on when they had literally nothing from the economy to international relations to obviously domestic issues uh, as well. But, you know, between May and November is a long time. It's a long time. A week can be a long time in politics. Think about several months. That, that, that I think, may have been a miscalculation on their part, and so too may be the collision of their talking points. That's, that's the phrase I want to seize on for a moment, the collision of their talking points. I was reviewing with you yesterday a fundraising email I received from the California governor, Gavin Newsom, about how he's raising money now, and obviously I'm just on the fundraising list for a lot of the Democrats, and I'm happy to be so. I, I get a good insight on, on what they're up to. But he, he was raising, soliciting uh, funds to help his campaign to what? What was his campaign fundraising email about yesterday? About making sure California solidifies its uh, abortion policies and that abortion stays uh legal in California. New York governor doing the same thing. Governor Hochul, she gave a speech yesterday at a rally. rally. <laughs> Why can't I say it? Rally. And she said, my message to those who will deny this fundamental basic right, you don't want to mess with us. You don't want to mess with the state of New York. And I assure you that this fight you will not win. I don't know what the fight is. In New York, but what they are telling us, these two big state governors, what they are telling us is a collision of the talking point because the talking point out of the left from Washington, D.C., out of the Democratic Party from Washington, D.C., is that abortion will now be illegal in this country. And what you are seeing, at least from the two biggest states, is that they, even if this ruling holds, even if Sam Alito's opinion holds, even if Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood uh, v. Casey, um, is is uh, stricken down if they are no longer good law, the states are totally free to do this. Totally free to do this. Now, one of the interesting things about California and New York is that in all the litigation that is taking place on abortion rights since 1973 is those states weren't the main plaintiffs. Those states did not try to pass more strict abortion policies since Roe versus Wade. There is nothing indicative of New York or California that is going to make abortion there more rare, much less illegal. Nothing. Nothing. Unless, of course, pro-lifers run in New York and California and win the legislature and pass legislation to make abortion 
uh, much more regimented in those states, much less liberalized in those states, and have a governor that can sign on to it. I suppose they can also work through the amendment process. I don't know if New York has an amend- has a, um, a pro- proposition process. I don't know New York's politics well enough. California certainly does. Some of the most famous, obviously, ballot propositions, voter-approved propositions, uh, come out of California. Second most might be Arizona. Second most uh, important, anyway, might be Arizona. In any way, in any event, my point is, who is Kathy Hochul threatening and who is Gavin Newsom threatening? All they are saying is that we will continue to keep abortion legal here regardless of the Dobbs decision. And guess what? The Dobbs decision, as written by Sam Alito, allows them to do that. It's not what you're hearing. From the networks. It's not what you're hearing from the talking heads in Washington, D.C. It's not what you're hearing from Senate Democratic leadership and House Democratic leadership. They're saying abortion will be made illegal. And these people are speaking at fundraising events and at rallies saying we're going to protect it here. That's what Dobbs allows them to do. So there's a collision of a talking point that I think come November may not work out too well for the Democrats because people are going to figure out not much will probably change. Not much in a lot of these states. Not much. New York Times analysis yesterday said this decision's effect based on the best research they can amass would change the rate of abortion by about 10 to 11 percent. 10 to 11 percent across the country, not New York, across the country. It could go up in New York, could very well go up in New York if uh, a neighboring or surrounding state does decide to cabin their abortion policies. But again, it would have to be through a debate in the legislature. We'll talk a little bit about that in my monologue as well. I see a few of you folks are calling in to weigh in on this. I welcome that. I'm just going to ask your uh, forbearance and patience, um, and we'll get to you uh, shortly if you can hold. In the meantime, as we um, as we head to break, let me put in a good word uh, for our great sponsors at Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com. Their fruits and veggies are what I take every single day. I got home really late last night, and I got up really early this morning. I never have a choice on getting up because... Dagny. <laughs> I never have a choice on getting up early because Dagny. And I can tell you why. I trained her early on to wake up back when I was doing the old Bill Bennett show and we had to be in the studio at 3.30 in the morning. I took Dagny with me as a baby. So she's always had that early morning thing. Went on a big long run this morning. Uh, feeling great. High energy. Balance of nature. 100% natural fruits and veggies. Ten servings of fruits and veggies and one daily dose. Check them out at balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show, 34 past the hour. John Dombrowski gives us our culture and economy update. He is the host of his own radio show right here every Saturday morning at 7 a.m., The Word on Wealth. He is the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates with a great and upbeat website, which suits his personality and his company, GrandCanyonPlanning.com. Hi, J.D. How are you today? Fantastic. Thanks, Seth. You betcha. You betcha. Okay, this is interesting to me. Uh, Powell quashes talk of a three-fourth point rate rise, Mm -hmm. and the Fed instead lifts rates by half point in biggest hike since 2000. What does all this mean? Yeah, so interesting. So we saw the Fed. We knew the Fed was going to be talking uh, yesterday and today in their meeting, and they expected that there was going to be a rate hike. The challenge was is that when we got the the inflationary numbers 
a couple of weeks ago, and they were so much higher than what we thought. Uh, the, we all of a sudden started to think, well, gee, maybe the Fed could actually raise more than what they originally talked about, maybe do three quarters of a percent. Uh, but they didn't. And apparently, during the explanation that uh, Fed Chair Powell gave, um, it looks like investors felt pretty confident, pretty comfortable that the Fed believes they have things under control. And they were very transparent in their, their comments, basically saying, hey, we're, we're raising a half a point. We're also going to raise uh, another two times, another uh, two half a point raises. And uh, what I think we're seeing here is is that investors like some type of clarity, right? Mm-hmm. And they hate uncertainty. Yep. So if indeed that, Money's a coward, we say, right? Yes. Right. Yes. So if this is true, if this is what the Fed is doing, then, you know, uh, investors in Wall Street, what they can do is they can now feel confident and comfortable. They can make decisions because they have a belief that they, they know what the Fed is going to do. Uh, John, the other part to this, and this one I don't understand. Maybe you can unfold it as well. You're you're so you're you're just so good at making clear that which is uh, not to me. Uh, the other thing they said, according to the headlines on this, is the uh, announced plans to shrink its nine trillion dollar asset portfolio. Right. What what does that mean to shrink its portfolio? Well, so in the past, the Fed's been buying. Um, up treasuries. Okay. Right? So okay. now they're going to be, uh, that's on their balance sheet, all of that debt. So they're going to be now um, selling. And so they're going to start to lighten up the load of, uh, and to create some liquidity for themselves as well. So that's that's does really that, what, does that go against the curve on it? Does that have an inflationary tendency to it or not really? Because no, it's no, not general. I don't, I don't okay. believe it will. But okay. what it will do is it, it will create a little bit of a flood in the market, right? For for those securities, which may affect some people out there. It may um, just those out there that hold bonds, it could affect their bonds. Uh, but I think overall, this is the Fed trying to get to a position to where if they need again to start tightening or if they or if they need to do something more drastic or if we do indeed get into some type of a, a recessionary period of time, that they'll have some wiggle room, some some other uh, levers that they can pull if need be. They won't be overextended. Uh, thank you for that. Also, uh, John, the other question I wanted to ask you about all of this is when we're what what were people who were hoping to curb inflation more wanting? Did they want the 50 percent or did they want the three fourths? What well, were the in yeah. other words, what were the inflation sure. hawks looking for? Well, the inflation hawks were probably looking for a, a, a stronger, higher, uh, higher, higher, okay. yes, increase, okay. right? Because they believe in their mind that this is not going to be enough, that we're prolonging uh, the potential of a recession. And the downside to that would have been what? If you're Jerome Powell, you're saying, well, the downside of going three fourths instead of fifty percent is what? Well, it does shock the system Got a bit, you know. And, and I think what they want to do is they want to do this in a, in a measured way, in a way that's that doesn't create too many. Uh, shocks to the system. And and it would be the same in any way, no matter if they went when they were lowering rates and bringing rates down so quickly. Uh, it created a tremendous amount of liquidity. Uh, it's just the opposite. They don't want to cut off uh, the ability for companies uh, to borrow and affect, affect how they would be doing business. So they want to keep the economy moving to a degree, but they do want to slow it uh, in a manner that's controllable. John, that's perfect, sir. 
That's right. perfect. You All can right. do a whole hour's class in six minutes. I love we, it. We, we'll get to gold. We talked about that. Oh, yeah. We yeah. want to talk about maybe, gold yeah. as a hedge yeah, on inflation. Yeah, maybe we could do that Yeah, tomorrow. we'll do that. You bet. Okay. Okay. S- Securities and Advisory Services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of FINRA and and Investment Advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Thank you, Seth. Thank you, John. All right. Good to see you last night. It was great to see you, as yes. always. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. As we do every Wednesday, we check in with our uh, Robert H. Jackson constitutional um, legal scholar, Brett Johnson. Brett W. Johnson, he's a partner here at the Snell & Wilmer Law Firm. A lot of names throughout you. I'm just going to introduce him as Brett Johnson from Snell & Wilmer from now on. Brett, how are you, sir? Good. How are you? I am fine. I need mm, I need about 20 segments with you to discuss the last 48 hours. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, we, you know I, I don't listen to podcasts. I, I, maybe I should, but we, we could literally just do volumes on what's happened this last week. Yeah. Yeah, we could. We started off wanting to talk today about a First Amendment case um, that had come down at the end of last week, I guess. And then uh, something else came up. And then this leak, this leak, uh, this leak of the Alito opinion in the Dobbs case, which of, about which there are in and of itself 20 segments we could talk about. Where would you start on this, uh, Brett? What were your first impressions and thoughts, uh, whether it's about the leak itself or whether it's about the merits of what Sam Alito uh, has written? Well, let's let's start with, gosh, you could start with both, and then we have actually uh, one of the same things that came to my mind. You know, for, for nerds like myself, you always are. Where were you when such and such happened? <laughs> yeah, right, right. right and right. and, and, and for, for two things back-to-back, one is the leak itself. Has, has never happened where a draft opinion has been leaked from the United States Supreme Court um, in, in history, as far as I know. Um, there have been obviously leaks about um, how people voted and how people changed their vote, and that came after the fact, which was by itself um, concerning at the time sure. because it's such a close knit group between the justices, the clerks, the collaboration that has to go back and forth. And by the way, just don't before on the show, a good high percentage of the Supreme Court opinions are unanimous because right. they're about boring taxation law or intellectual property law that are very not controversial. Cases most people will never hear about. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So then you have this, and then you have, you know, Dobbs versus Jackson and the first draft coming out. And again, we could talk about that. It was a February draft. A lot changes between February and now. Mm -hmm. But you'll be hearing for people who are listening and the grandkids all, all the way through, Dobbs versus Jackson is going to be one of those cases that goes down in history. You know, you have to bring everything back to Arizona, as I normally say. Yep. So Miranda versus Arizona, yep. that you know, the, the, the right not to have to speak to the police without a, without an attorney present. Yep. That is a historical case that everybody knows. I, I, I want to exercise my Miranda right. Right. This is going to be one of those cases that we talk about for a very long time. That's a good point. Uh, and and again, we're assuming that what Alito wrote or at least the votes he amassed for what he wrote hold. And there's, you know, it, it, which is it's it, it's unclear where John Roberts is on this. I, I, I guess it's it's if it's kind of tilting that he didn't sign on. But we don't know if he might have since or if he might, you know, sign on with a dissent or have his own concurrence, actually. Right. And, and right, might have his own concurrence, which has, you know, caused a lot of confusion in the past, right. too, with sure. multiple concurrences, right. including 
you know, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, right. which was the 1992 case um, on Roe. Um, yeah, just so for, for listeners can understand, you know, if the chief justice is, is part of the majority, the chief justice chooses who writes the opinion. Right. And for something of this historical significance, most chief justices would choose themselves if there was a concur, concur, uh, if they were in the majority to actually try to bridge the opinion and make it, um, lack of better terms, more palatable to the minority. Uh-huh. Try to make sure there's harmony on the Supreme Court. Right. So the fact that that he did not choose himself is is, is very interesting. But separately, when when Justice Chief Justice Roberts is not um, uh, is not in the majority, it goes to just, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas because mm-hmm. um, he's the most senior member who's most likely part part of this uh, opinion. And so it was also surprising that Justice Thomas, who has had words on this issue for a very long time, yeah. also would not have kept it for himself. Right. So it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out when the actual opinion comes through and looking at the concurrences and probably a, a very visceral dissent um, from the liberal, liberal portions of the, of the court. And tons of political outfall, uh, fallout from, from okay. this uh, in the fundraising and advertising and political campaign year, about which I don't know how it shakes out quite yet, to be honest with you. I mean, I was speculating on air a little bit that there should be concern for Republicans because the fundraising machines and the Democrats now have something to talk about when they didn't have that much to talk about. I don't want to put you in a partisan position, Brett. But we don't know from an objective standard how that will shake out. Clearly, it was I think I think it was clear it was it was leaked from someone who doesn't agree with the Alito position. It might have come out too early. I mean, you know, an eternity between May and in and November, but it it could it could dramatically change these elections, and it may not. It may not if it did come, in fact, out too early, or if the Democrats overplay their hand on this. Right there well, is there yeah, is there is this problem that half of them, or I shouldn't say half, the Washington D.C. apparatus of Democrats is talking about this will make abortion illegal and abortion. Uh, unsafe. But the governors, the Democratic governors, like in California, New York, they're talking about how they're going to, you know, make sure that their abortion policies in those states stay, which, you know, contradicts the notion that it's going to be illegal. Yeah, no, and you're exactly right. And especially if if obviously this opinion does hold, um, it does go back to the state rights and um, the states to to make that determination. However, one thing I, I, I will concur in having now lived this last two uh, two days um, is is that both the Democrats and the Republicans will be fundraising heavily on this to to ensure um, that both from the federal government standpoint, the U.S. Senate and U.S. Congress, as well as the state legislatures, um, you know, have have the influence one way or the other to to be able to manage what is going to come out of Dobbs versus Jackson. Does it change much in Arizona, Brett? If again, uh, uh, assuming the Alito position or decision uh, stay, stays somewhat close to what it is, or exactly, does it change much of what's going on in Arizona? My sense is not it, really. You could, yeah, you answer. I won't. Yeah, go ahead. Um, so, no, it, so is, is what? What there's a, there's a law from 1912 before we were even a state. Arizona was a state. The territorial law that that outlaws and makes it a criminal action for abortion. So that law was in place all the way up until Roe versus Wade, and it never was repealed. So the question is, do you go back to that 1912 law, or do you actually um, rely on the 2022 law 
um, just signed by Governor Ducey, making the 15-week um, ban um, in place. So that is going to be an interesting kind of legal for, for really some court to kind of figure out. The other issue is that post-Roe um, in Arizona, as well as in other um, um, state constitutions, they actually inserted a right to privacy, not specifically about abortions and um, or, or other types of societal type issues, but the, the more broad right to privacy and what does that actually mean for the state of Arizona and those states? Because what Justice Alito, at least in this draft, if, it, if it's 100 percent correct, was stating was that there is not a right to privacy in the United States Constitution. Yeah, right. Well, it, there, there might be one within the, in the state constitutions, and, and that is, I think, going to be one of those focal points when you're talking about, um, you know, Governor Newsom and Governor Ducey. Yeah, those are the point. kind of issues that they're going to have to deal with. That's a fair point, and nothing stops the state constitution from having a privacy right under this whole. Brett Johnson, you are the best, sir. Clear, clear thinking. I appreciate you so much from uh, the Stellan Wilmer, Wilmer Law Firm, SWLaw.com. I'm Seth Leibson. Brett, thank you so much, as always. Thank you. God bless and Godspeed. Till next week, be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. For those of you looking for a great and unique investment opportunity with a fabulous return for investors, I want you to check out my friends at Y-Refi. They are my friends. I met with them a bunch. Checked under the hood on this a lot, as I always want to when trying to understand an investment offer that I am endorsing. I have no problem, no hesitation in endorsing this one. It's really great. I'm talking about a fixed, no-load interest rate up to 10.25% return for investors, all in a secure and collateralized portfolio. Why Refi helps people who are doing their best to dig out a debt the right way, doing the right thing to pay off their debts, and doing so with dignity, even getting their FICO scores fixed along the way. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm run by really great people who are doing very well by helping others, and you can too. Never endorsed an investment unless I truly believed in it, so what more can I tell you except to go check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y dot com, investyrefi.com. Or give them a call at 855-316-3087. And tell them Seth sent you. One of the things that's interesting to me um, about the fallout from the Alito leak, something we mentioned and touched on only briefly yesterday. As I said with Brett, you can do hours on Every aspect of what happened uh, with the leak but and the opinion, the underlying merits of the opinion under it. One of the interesting things I was bringing up is even when Roe came out, a lot of, lot of, lot of short memories on this. Even when Roe came out, the liberal legal scholars in this country were questioning the uh, justiceability and rationale of it. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, as I say, uh, when she was nominated to the Supreme Court, had to revouch for her bona fides on being in favor of supporting Roe versus Wade because she had made some comments about how infirm it was and how uh, unwise, it, unwisely it was written. Uh, geek out on you a little bit. Perhaps one of the most respected law professors in the land at that time, liberal. Uh, John Hart Eli wrote a big, long review, a big, long law review article on it uh, saying Roe versus Wade is not constitutional law and does not pretend to be. One I didn't know, the Wall Street Journal printed, Archibald Cox. Anyone remember Archibald Cox? 
He was John Kennedy's solicitor general and the special prosecutor uh, against Nixon in uh, Watergate. And he opened up a statement saying in 1970, uh, in 1973, the opinion fails even to consider what I was supposed to be the most important compelling interest of the state in prohibiting abortion. The interest in maintaining respect for the paramount sanctity of human life, which has always been at the center of Western civilization. Boy, that's what liberalism was back in the 70s. What I wouldn't do for it now. You can call it conservatism. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.